Thank you, Emily. It's nice to have you with us tonight. You're not supposed to be here, <laughs> but we're happy you are. Made it uh, work. <laughs> cool. Greetings, good evening. Neil, hey, nice to see you. So let's begin with our usual. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddha, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddha, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddha, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all our steps in the path of all missions, may this arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Mansu Shri, please accomplish this. Good evening and welcome, and great to see you all. Thank you for joining. I am honored and privileged and really very happy and excited that I have the opportunity to study this material with you guys. Really uh, rare and unique pleasure for me. I've, uh, we talked, we did a course on, on this Deirdre and Lowrick back in the, the last millennium, <laughs> actually shortly after the last millennium, sometime like 2008 or something. So it's been a long time. And I've said for many years, I keep saying like in classes, well, if only we had gone through that, it would be easier to understand X, Y, and Z. So now we're doing it. I'm really excited about that. And my, uh, that said, it's not plugged in. <laughs> For that gesture. <laughs> so uh, tonight we have an introduction by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who is uh, who conceived and introduced this volume, and uh, conceiving it was a miraculous feat but much more miraculous was making it happen. And so that reminds me, I had assigned a little homework for you got for you all. And I wonder if anyone wants to offer up the, the questions were, who is the author of the book? Who's the translator and who's the editor? Maybe we'll start with the, the easy ones. Who's the uh, editor? Mary Beth. Would that be the Dalai Lama's brother? Uh, you're thinking of Thupten Jinpa. Yeah. And not his brother. <laughs> not his brother. His, uh, one of his main translators throughout time has been Thupten Jinpa. But he is the main editor. Thank you. All right. We're on a roll. <laughs> translator? Anya? Um, Ian Coughlin. Ian James Coughlin. Yeah, he's Irish. I don't know how to pronounce that. Coughlin. Coughlin. Anyone? Neil? <laughs> Coughlin. Coughlin. How about a Coughlin? Anyway, um, developed, developed by the Compendium uh, Compilation Committee. Any author? It remains a mystery, doesn't it? 
I was going to say various. <laughs> various. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's obviously a joint venture, but you know that makes it even more miraculous in some ways for people to be able to work together and like split up the creation of such a, a an intense set of books. Anyway, uh, let's run through this amazing. Introduction by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, where he covers everything, almost, except for like the kitchen sink. So, not sure if we'll get through it all. But, uh, scientific method. So, what a neat comparison of, uh, in the West, civilization evolved and you got some human humanoids that came up with this idea that in order to, uh, figure out what's really going on in the world, they should have like a process and a system that uh, sort of challenges it and tests it without assumptions and just like see what happens, observe phenomena in the actual world around us and um, put together hypotheses and test those hypotheses and uh, come to some conclusions on that basis. But always like enter in with an open state of mind. And uh, he compares that to the Buddhist tradition of uh, examining the phenomenal world with uh, perception. Uh, uh, and, and in the Buddhist tradition, it's called, um, he, he went over different sources for authority. You know, how do we know something is true? And uh, there's traditionally these three sources. There's... Um, There's, we see it, we hear it, we touch it, we feel it, we smell it, we taste it. Direct perception through our five senses. Not always 100%, but it's pretty convincing, right? Then there's, um, <clears throat> uh, you read it in a newspaper, maybe. <laughs> you read it in the Bible, you know, or some religious book. Uh, you know, maybe, and then uh, use reasoning based on fact, reasoning based on fact. So that's a common phrase in this tradition of uh, logic is reasoning based upon fact instead of reason based upon hunch or, um, <laughs> or uh, assumption or presumption. So, interesting comparison that, that Buddhism has its own uh, scientific method. And uh, he, he focuses in on a couple of the major differences in the scientific methods in the East and the West. Anyone, what, what's one of the main differences? In the East, sorry, Jill. I was I was going to say that one thing he points out is that included in the direct observation is what is perceived through the mind or in or in meditative states as well. Bingo. And, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You were on a roll. You're good. That was it. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, huge difference. You know, in the, in the West, it was like everything was based on the external world and what we thought and, and experienced. 
and found inside our minds was not considered like an avenue for scientific exploration until you know a couple hundred years ago and then it was like out from the outside <laughs> with the sensors and the forceps or something i don't know you know looking into the brain assuming that the brain and the mind were equivalent always um so big difference another difference is that the the goal of science what's the goal of the whole endeavor in buddhism it it does have an agenda <laughs> the goal from day one was to become a happier and a, a better place for oneself and others and science was not you know science was like non-committal it's just we're trying to figure out you know just the facts man <laughs> from dragnet there's no like sense of commitment that science should be used for positive development of uh sentient life on the planet three topics uh he identifies When he talks about how Buddhism, you know, developed a whole system for well-being, that was the whole idea in Buddhism. Three domains so on page six of the subject matter of Buddhist texts, and he boils down the three domains to um, the natural world, the observable natural world, again including both inside the brain, inside the mind, and outside the lining of our body second one is philosophy like what do you make of that what do you make of that emotion or that rock over there and then the third one is ethics vaguely corresponding to the three baskets of the teachings of uh, vinaya or ethical precepts and uh, sutras philosophical discourses and the natural world codified into the abhidharma um, he gives a very nice summary of the greater vehicle mahayana on the bottom of page eight Um, and, and actually, actually, before that, he gives an interesting uh, take on the Four Noble Truths as representing ground path and fruition that I thought was interesting. So we can observe a clear differentiation. So the, par the second full paragraph on page 8, take for example, the Four Noble Truths, uh, the ground or nature of reality, path and result, statements on the nature of the Four Truths, this is the truth of suffering and so forth is the ground and then the, uh, there's there's certain presentations of the noble truths as ha the buddha repeated them three times and gave different nuance to each round of rep repetition and trump Rinpoche talks about this in his seminary teachings which are now uh, encapsulated in the profound treasury but um is a slightly different the dalai lama says uh suffering is to be known the first two are, are the same in uh, the Dalai Lama, Trungpa Rinpoche. 
um, presents the path and the statements pertaining to the agent and fruit of the path, i.e. suffering is to be known, yet there is nothing to be known. <laughs> it's an odd little statement. I don't know if anyone else tripped up over that. I sort of fell and broke my glasses on that. No. <laughs> but uh, I, th I think as opposed to like shifting into some Mahayana emptiness thing, it's a referral to, in the resultant stage, there's nothing le else to be known. Everything, uh, you know, the, the fifth path among the five paths is called no more learning. No more school, no more teachers, dirty looks, and so forth. So, uh, you know, uh, nothing left to be known. Anyway, nice summary of the Mahayana in the next paragraph. The presentation starts with the two truths, the conventional and the ultimate, which is the ground, and, the, and then the two as what he calls aspects, which is sort of funny term of, uh, he says, method and wisdom. Method is an alternative trans translation for the Sanskrit upaya. Uh, you know, we have a prajna, is wisdom, and upaya, usually skillful means. Sometimes method is the path. Those are the two wings of enlightenment, the two areas uh, that we collect accumulations of skillful means and wisdom. Skillful means uh, is uh, cultivating skillful means generates the accumulation of um, merit and cultivating wisdom accumulates obviously the, the accumulation of wisdom. And then uh, the two Buddha bodies, form and truth. Bodies is the result. And uh, all of these are grounded in understanding of the nature of reality. And uh, even in the case of the highest aim in Buddhism, the attainment of the two Buddha bodies or the Buddhahood that is the embodiment of the four Buddha bodies, the potency to actualize these aims can be found in the innate mind of clear light that renders, that sorry, that resides naturally within us. Anyone, uh, there's two things in there. One is uh, the four Buddha bodies. So anyone look at the foot, footnote? We got the usual two form bodies, right? Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya. Tell me about the two Dharma, the two uh, formless bodies. Anyone? One was the wisdom body and one was the... Uh, was it the nature body? I can't remember how he translated. But uh, those of us who were in the course on the, the pure perception, the Rangjung Dorje's presentation on Buddha nature, this came up in there that the Dharmakaya is divided into these two types. And so let's see. The wisdom aspect. Enjoyment. So well, enjoyment enjoy body and emanation. Those are the two form, the two form okay. bodies. So, the truth body has two aspects. So when he says truth, truth is a is an uh, unusual translation for dharma, kaya. When we say dharma kaya, the truth body has two aspects: its wisdom aspect and its underlying natural expanse. <laughs> and uh, so, so partially we're getting a like we may be used to the Kagyu version of certain things, and you'll see that we're getting now the Galupa version, and, um, as opposed to like thinking they're wrong or bad or silly or anything. I find it 
helpful like to hear different like ways that it's understood and presented sort of fill out the picture uh the potency so we think potency we think immediately buddha buddha nature right tatagata garba for them <laughs> for kalubas it's the innate mind of clear light for some reason they refuse to like take buddha nature as like the way we take it as uh, the the constantly and immediately and perpetually present uh, presence of buddha hood or buddha nature in our in all sentient beings and instead uh, the potential resides in the innate light innate mind of clear light which is the very subtle light of subtle um mind of uh the very that's identified in the highest tantra systems of the Golubba school and they have this phrase of the clear light as a way of referring to the, the pure mind anyway Uh, and then he sums up on page nine, the context of the Buddhist text can be grouped within the three domains of the nature of reality or science, philosophical texts or view and religious practice, namely the presentation of the path and the way in which the results are actualized. I see great benefit if we engage with the works in the conjure, and we'll come back to these two terms, conjure and tender, because it goes through them in great depth. Buddhist presentations of reality and Buddhist science, a philosophical outlook and uh, methods of inquiry. Um, he gives a little introductory uh, statement. At the very bottom, he says, this basic feature of the scientific method seems to accord with the two criteria of existence proposed in Mahayana, sorry, in Buddhist Madhyamaka texts for something to exist. One, it must be known by conventionally valid cognition. When he says conventionally valid cognition, we normally think, oh, it's conventional and that's not a big deal. But it's meant to be like that's the end all and the be all for beings until you become enlightened. So it actually goes a long way. And two, it must not be contravened by some other conventionally valid cognition. So we'll get into valid, uh, con uh, valid and unvalid, invalid cognition eventually. On page 10, he invokes the uh, four reliances, set out the basic discernments necessary when inquiring into the nature reality. He's, he's presenting this as, it was presented by the Buddha as like a, a, a way to guide us in how do we uh, approach the variety, the, the huge variety and expanse and diversity, which is the variety, I guess, but of the, the presentation of uh, material in the Buddhist tradition, um, some of which present very different views on different things. And, and the Buddha said, when analyzing a particular claim, number one, we must not draw conclusions based on the renown of the person who is making the statement, rather based on what the person has said. And two, uh, we should not deduce truth or falsity uh, due to the literary merits or quality of the writing 
but based to instead the content of the statement is more important than its form. And thirdly, with respect to that contents, uh, we should not trust those that may have been stated provisionally for an expedient purpose. Uh, rather, we should accord greater importance to the definitive meaning that pertains to the actual nature of reality. Now that's where a great deal of debate and discussion and disagreement enters in as to which statements by the Buddha are expedient and which are definitive statements about the nature of reality because it gives somewhat different versions of the nature of reality in different texts. Intentionally planting this, this uh, sort of um, variety of views to force us to uh, to really think about things and try to figure out which which was said why and how and when and so forth. And then fourthly, with, with respect to that definitive meaning, when we, when we are approaching identifying and understanding the definitive meaning of the Buddha's intention, we should accord greater importance to the observations of direct perception and not be content with mere conjecture on word or word-based understandings. <laughs> That's an unusual rendition of this fourth one, which traditionally uh, or literally, uh, when you look at the sutra that the Buddha spoke this in, he says, rely on wisdom and not consciousness. And the Dalai Lama extrapolates that as you have here. Um, then for the actual analysis, he just gives like tons of categories. It's pretty interesting. Texts speak of the four principles of reason. Not only do these four principles demonstrate the Buddhist outlook on the natural world, if we examine carefully, we can also say that they embody the entire Buddhist presentation about reality. The first is the principle of nature. And so this is a famous list of um, of how we reason, how we come to understand the nature of our reality that we find ourselves in. And there's four types of reasonings generally that are used in understanding the nature of reality. And um, these are presented in, uh, we've run into these before in what are called the Six Discoveries by Trungpa Rinpoche which is a category of Vipassana in the famous text by Jamgu Control in the Treasury of Knowledge where he goes through Shamatha and Vipassana, that text that we've been through numerous times. Um, and um, he, he goes through a famous list of six uh, topics that one gains understanding of through Vipassana, and one of them is called reasoning, the last one of the six. And they give four categories to that. And the first one is the principle of nature. What is its nature? Is it one or is it many? Is the famous, most famous thing in terms of understanding emptiness. Are the aggregates and the self one and the same? Or are they different phenomena? And how do they relate to each other? Do they relate as one and the same or different? And then... Uh, um, he explains this as the beginning and end of the universe. 
he gives unusual explanations, at least for me unusual, even though we can speak of a beginning. So he goes through the beginninglessness of the universe. Um, and he concludes with a discussion of what is the main logic for uh, the Buddhist view of rebirth. Is that there's if we accept that we have a mind, that we have a consciousness, then there's no reason to, to think that that consciousness, which, it, which manifests as a stream of moments throughout the continuum of one's life, why should that be severed at death when the, the physical body dies, since the body and the mind are separate and have their own continuums? And likewise, was there ever a first, a, a, a first moment of that consciousness? How could there suddenly arise consciousness where there was not consciousness before? So they feel that there was always consciousness, just as there was always matter. These are beginningless. Um, he, he quotes Shanti Deva in his Bodhicharavatara and uh, who talks about the natural evolution of phenomena, interestingly similar to Mr. Darwin. And um, he, he says that at some point evolution ends up impacting the, the sentient beings um, activity or development in relation to uh, happiness and suffering. Um, which is sort of like an interesting and sort of not very clear and direct, but definitely like a way of supporting that the, the Buddhist uh, way of life, the Buddhist system or religion or whatever you call it, is sort of the culmination or is, the, is part of the process of evolution of sentient life. The second principle, the principle of dependence, so interdependence, the fundamental relationship of uh, one phenomena upon others, relates to the way the features and effect are. Dis oh, sorry, relates to the way the features and effect displays are congruent. Sorry, contingent. <laughs> I don't know where I'm getting these words from. <laughs> are contingent on the characteristics of its cause. You plant. Uh, pumpkin seed and you get pumpkins. You don't get bananas. In other words, all the diverse attributes that exist in an effect are byproducts of the aggregation of the various characteristics present in the cause. He uses uh, the image of farming, this famous example for this. And skipping to the next paragraph, he says, with the principle of dependence, interdependence, we can distinguish three types of dependence. There's causal dependence, which he just went through an example of. And I mentioned an example of planting seeds and getting fruit from seeds, cause and result. Two is the way the integrity of a whole depends on its constitutive parts. So a table depends on the legs and the top and whatever holds it together. And uh, so that's a type of dependency, that phenomena depend upon their parts to become whatever the hell they are. 
And then third is dependency in terms of conceptual designation that uh, the world that we live in of people and animals and up and down and left and right and good and bad and being small is all conceptually created. And so all of that depends upon conceptual designation. He says uh, that given everything exists as mere conventional designation, which is rather a big statement that we may not necessarily have bought into yet, but he has clearly their very identity as distinct phenomena as a function of the mind's labeling of them. This last sense of dependence is extremely profound. The principle of function, the third principle, refers to functions individual entities perform of their distinct natures and functions. They support, for example, a seed as a cause of a sprout and so forth. The final principle is the principle of evidence, and this is variously translated in other places as the principle of reasoning or logical reasoning. But the, the whole set of, of this four categories is also called the four principles of reasoning. So it's better to come up with a different uh, word for this, such as uh, evidence is what he comes up with. It's usually logical analysis. Uh, refers to what allows us to draw inference, inferential understanding of such and such, then such and such. Uh, let's see. So when we come to the, the whole situation of reasoning, we'll, we'll go through these in more detail and focus uh, extensively on the fourth one. Um, the nature of the objective world. Is, has these four parts, another list for us. There's the nature of the objective world, the presentation of the mind as the subject of that, that experience of the natural world or objective world. Object, again, uh, from last time I tried to, maybe not successfully, but tried to explain why the course title was Knowing the Objective World. And the idea is gonna focus on that side of the equation of what is known and uh, the next course or segment of uh, material will be focused on the way that the subject knows the objective world, which is part two, the presentation of the mind, the subject. Three, how the mind engages its subject, in what ways, conceptually, non-conceptually, etc. And then the means, such as the science of logical reasoning, what is the means for engaging for it conceptually and non-conceptually uh, um, and in various other ways? And this overarching framework has been adopted for these four volumes in this series, and it was adopted in the Shadra system long ago, uh, basically um, the whole framework of the Shadra curriculum. The objective world, we can distinguish three categories. First is those of observable facts. And this is a, a threefold categorization that maybe uh, you've seen before. Um, and it comes in to the uh, play when we talk about the difference between what what is direct perception, uh, know or experience, what's the realm of, of uh, possible experiences of direct perception 
versus the realm of possible experiences of inferential cognition. And the first is uh, the category of evident observable facts, observable meaning by our senses. Those things for whose cognition we do not need to rely on either logical reasoning or someone else's verbal testimony. We can see them or experience them for ourselves. Second, are those facts not directly observable, but that can be known on the basis of logical reasoning. We can use inference to come to valid conclusions about things that we've experienced directly or things that other people have experienced directly and told us about. And we can then use lot inferential reasoning to conclude for ourselves that X, Y, or Z is true. Finally, some facts we simply cannot discern through either direct perception or evidence or evidence-based logical reasoning. And this last category must be known on the basis of the words of a reliable person, which is a sort of um, uh, unclear way of talking about this last category, which is generally the uh, said to be the workings of karma is the main um, example of this is that uh, even through inferential reasoning we cannot really understand the complexity of the workings of karma and only someone at the state of a fully enlightened buddha such as shakyamuni gautama shakyamuni is able to understand in detail and in depth the workings of karma and therefore he is the reliable person from among all the persons who have and will exist on this planet called earth and this saha a universe which is what the buddhist name for this universe is s-a-h-a -A. Uh, let's see he gives some examples and let's skip those in the middle of page 13 this motive uh, the first full paragraph of inquiry into the nature of reality through the use of these three means, direct observation, inference, and testimony, consonant with the threefold classification of the facts of the world, <coughs> existed in the Buddhist tradition from its inception during the Buddhist time. He presented this structure as well. Nonetheless, it was Dignaga of the fifth century and his commentator, Dhanakirti in the seventh, who were directly responsible for developing a comprehensive science of uh, logical reasoning, of Buddhist logical reasoning, which framed and expanded upon and clarified how this whole thing works. Uh, the, the understanding of these three types of objects. And the Madhyamaka philosophy is based primarily on critical reasoning, which arose during the time of the Buddha himself, but was refined, especially by Nagarjuna, and uh, the emergence of a distinct and complete system of logic and epistemology must be attributed to Dignaga and Dharmakirti. However, it was well established through the treatises, treatises of the non-Buddhist school, Indian school called the Nyayakas, well before these two gentlemen, the two Ds, Dignagadharmakirti. However, they further advanced the science of logic and epistemology through their innovations, such as the triple criteria of a logical proof, uh, which is the forward, backward, and 
the subject quality, forward, backward, pervasion, and the subject quality, these three rules of a logical statement that we'll come to and go into. And uh, the concept of apoha, which means in Sanskrit differentiation, and it's a way of explaining how the conceptual mind comes up with or delineates an idea and the, the idea of this way of creating ideas is that we um, um, automatically or unconsciously, when we think of something, we unconsciously eliminate all various possible alternatives that that something might take and come up with one variation of it. So if I say the word car, and a car is an idea or concept, it has very little relationship to the thing that you use to get to the store. Those of you that drive cars. <laughs> but um, uh, the idea of a car, I say that, you know, think of a car we all come up with a different type of car, you know, and your mind like instantaneously like eliminates the zillion possible cars and you come up with whatever kind of car you come up with. And, and that's the way um, it's, so conceptual mind is an exclusive or an exclusionary way of understanding phenomena. It excludes everything that is not what we want to think about or talk about or identify. And then the, the opposite is said of direct perception or direct cognition. Is that direct cognition perception is inclusive knower. It instantly takes in all the qualities of an object, shape, color, size, location, etc. It's like instantly our senses uh, gather all the different aspects of a of an object that are that particular sense is able to take in uh, let's so see. question on that when does that mean that all the senses simultaneously are that's engaged? a good question that's, then, the, that's but, a good question actually you can't do no. multiple things at no. once i guess with the sixth consciousness yeah the answer is no is that is that each consciousness includes its own um, the its own possible aspects of an object? So the eye consciousness takes in the color and shape, and the ear takes in the tone and the frequency. Right now, that part I understood. They're each in their own channels. But the question was, you were talking about immediately or instantly. So I was wondering more in terms of time, whether we simultaneously process no. all five channels. No, whether... no, individually. And so they, they come in whatever order they happen to come in. Yeah. Okay, so it is really one at a time, not all at once. That's right. That's, good. That's a good point. Thank you for that. And let's see, he mentioned some other folks in the arena of this wonderful world of logical reasoning at the time. And let's see. 
The very bottom two other alternative systems of classification of reality are presented in Buddhist sources. So he's doing a rundown of various ways of classifying reality in the Buddhist world. Uh, he's he's given one that is the framework for the structure of these books, but he's touching touching on these other ones as because they're interesting to know about and interesting to sort of compare to the way that the structure of approaching reality is presented in this system. So he says there is also the system of the fivefold classification and uh, you might have initially thought that oh those are the skandhas but no not exactly. These are called the five bases and when we go through tenant systems you'll see a reference to this over and over again but it's how the 75 dharmas are grouped and the 100 dharmas are grouped into these five categories and I know I last week I both during class and afterwards I threw lots of charts at you and didn't really explain clearly what chart was for what reason or etc but um, basically when we look at the dharmas charts of how of the many dharmas of our reality they're divided into two main categories conditioned and unconditioned phenomena is the first way of dividing reality but a, another uh, more uh, numerous way of dividing realities into these five categories so you have the unconditioned is number five and then the conditioned is divided into matter mind or in this case primary mind primary mind means one of the six consciousnesses those are the six primary minds and then concomitant mental factors are the, the famous 51 mental factors and then this odd category that we talked a little bit about last week called non-associated formations or non-associated conditioning factors there are also classifications with specific purposes such as the, that of the 12 bases and 18 elements and uh, oddly he doesn't uh, he doesn't name the five skandhas but famously uh, when we went through Vasubandhu's text on uh, the uh, five skandhas he uh, his commentator Stiramati in the beginning in the introduction explains what the purpose of each of these were and one of them is is to break down the sense of there being a, a single um, self that's the skandhas and then the uh, let's see the um, the 12 ayatanas uh, and the 18 datus I can never remember which is which but one of them is meant to break down the sense that we're the agent of our thoughts and the other is to break down the sense of there being not enough time in the day no I can't remember the third one <laughs> so I just made up something silly anyway they have like these purposes uh, anyway so there's various ways in which reality is parsed which is a technical cooking term and subsumed the first category of reality in the fivefold classification is material form and, and we showed I went through this a little bit last week when I showed you the uh, the outline of the uh, 
collected topics, right? We have material form and uh, the, in the Buddhist tradition, the nature of matter, uh, matter, sorry, is delineated, differentiated into 11 types of material forms, which have three main types, uh, obstructive and non-obstructive form, and thirdly, mental object forms. Oh, sorry. The first one is, uh, let's see, usually this is presented differently. Okay, I'll go with his, <laughs> since he's a freaking Dalai Lama. Uh, both obstructive and non-obstructive forms, and uh, mental object forms, which is one of the more bizarre categories of forms, as well as the great elements, the four big ones. And uh, actually, in this case, there are five, and uh, they're derivatives. See part two of this volume, where he goes through matter. Explorations of material form include also the topic of um, the formation of the natural world. And, and uh, I'll circulate later like a more detailed outline of the collected topics, and you'll see the categories of matter if you're interested and so forth. as well as the topic of atomic particles, and also addresses the question of whether the nature of material objects can be explained on the basis of the aggregation of atoms, or whether ultimately what is perceived as external matter is nothing but perceptions of mind. So that is uh, one of the, the things that is grappled with in the analysis of matter is, how do we get from uh, subtle particles to visible matter how many particle how many subtle particles do you have to combine to create visible matter and how can that happen i don't know if anybody in the scientific world has ever done this like how many electrons or atoms or whatever atoms we, i guess we can say trillion a trillion atoms have to be stuck to glued together in order for us to perceive them. Okay, with our naked uh, means of observation. And so um, uh, the question is to what extent they, they really are the way that we think they are, the subtle particles, since we can't ever really observe them. Um, Within the theory of atoms, there's also the view of space particles that act as the basis for the other natural elements. <laughs> so in the early tradition, they thought that space was a real thing, and so space had particles, space particles, which is a very cool idea. So how do those uh, interact with other, you know, types of form like earth and water particles and so forth? Uh, let's see, even with respect to a single particle, its characteristics can be different vastly, can differ vastly depending on the distinctive perspective of two in beings interacting with that individual particle at the same locus. Differences as great as between the sky and the earth, and they usually invoke the example of insects who walk on water and view water as earth, 
and fish who swim through water and view water as air, and humans who drink water and view water as liquid. They also add in the suras who view water as flaming, pus, whatever, but that's not generally accepted in the Western world. The Buddhists also refer to a fifth element in the next paragraph known as the space element. By elements, interesting ex explanation here of elements. Um, we should not understand only composite things. You know, we tend to think, well, matter is made up of particles of matter, and maybe there's different types of particles of matter. We all have the periodic table in our mind of the different types of matter. They have a very small periodic table made up of five elements in their mind. But um, in their mind, it's not just particles, they're forces. So they actually had the idea of like forces, like magnetism and things, like uh, cohesion. Water is cohesion. It's like magnetism in a sense. And wind is propulsion, is the energy of momentum or uh, you know, so the elements are, have a both a uh, particle formation. They're a wave. They're a particle and a wave, <laughs> in some sense. What we perceive in our everyday experiences, earth, water, fire, and air, although labeled as elements, are in fact very coarse conglomerations. Uh, so there's in the Buddhist sources very detailed presentations of physiology as well. Uh, of the body, you know, they, they then go through uh, one of the main experiences of matter that all sentient beings have, which is their body. They go through the, the aspects of the human body in this tradition in great detail. And uh, the primary and secondary wind energies, the 21,600 cycles of breath. Anyone try to figure out where that number comes from? How many well, seconds? How many I'm seconds? Sure it's a, a multiplication day. there. I was going to ask if anybody had counted them all today. <laughs> how many? How many uh, seconds in a day? Uh, Eighty-four thousand. Fourteen thousand. I mean, it's like four a minute is what it comes to. I did the exactly. math before. Exactly. I did the math before. Comes, Thank you. It comes to four. No, not four a minute. Four, four a second. Four a second. Four a second. Yeah. Or whatever. Four, sorry. One breath per every four seconds. Seconds. One breath. Yeah, that's it. F Fifteen a minute. Right. One every four seconds. So there's eighty-four some odd thousand seconds in a day, and they figure there's a breath every four seconds. Eighty-six four hundred. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, And then they go into cosmology, and he uh, talks a little bit about uh, Sangha, which I'm not going to go into in the next paragraph. And then in the next paragraph, and I'm on page 15, first full paragraph, the, uh, they describe the shape and size of the planets, and uh, the they present these traditional cosmology that has Mount Meru at the center, and the Earth is flat, and the sun and the moon fly circle above us. He says, I believe these cosmological explanations are simply the received views of the times. Very interesting wording here. And by the way, um, um, 
I know that like when we read introductions by Chogyam Trungpa, you know, he did introductions to a number of, well, there's documents, introductions to a number of books that other people published. Like Jewel Ornament, he did an introduction to. Reign of Wisdom, he did an introduction to. Um, his introductions were not usually, when we say written by Chogyam Trungpa, that's a very loose statement. Like Larry Mermelstein wrote many of those introductions, and he would talk with Rimshe, you know, what do you want me to say? And he would come up with it and read it to him, and Rimshe would change it and tweak it. And, then he would say, fine. I imagine that somebody did that with the Dalai Lama in this case as well. Uh, I very much doubt that the Dalai Lama either sat down and wrote this or dictated it word by word. But uh, anyway, uh, an interesting way of explaining this. Um, these specific claims about cosmology are in direct conflict with confirmed findings of contemporary science. This is one of the big differences between Buddhist science, so-called, and Western science is the cosmology. And he says, I have not held these as part of my worldview for quite a long time. In other words, he's dispensed with the traditional Buddhist cosmology and accepted the Western one. And we saw, I think it was the last course or the one before that the Alan Wallace one what was that one uh, there's one where uh, this guy's a translator for Tibet and then they go to Iceland or something and uh, he gets they, he says goodnight to the Lama or the Rimshe that he's translating for and the next morning he goes to, to greet him and you know say you know get ready to work together to translate his teaching and the Lama's like visibly upset. <laughs> he says, the sun didn't set last night. <laughs> he says, what is wrong? This doesn't make sense. He was like totally freaked out. And then the translator goes through this long explanation of how the reality of the cosmology is. And the Tibetan's just like, no, there's something wrong. <laughs> But he says that he claims to have finally convinced him and, and settled him down. Anyway, the formation of the earth, of the universe rather, not the earth, universe. And uh, on the next page, 16, he references the big bang. Love that phrase. And um, this is uh, not fascinating part of the material for me, so I didn't really spend much time on it, just sort of skim through it. The Mind and Reasoning, page 17. I don't know if other people had comments or questions or thoughts about what I skipped over on 16, top of 17. Also talks about time, not identified as something independent of mind and matter. It's defined as a construct and the basis of matter consciousness. In the past, that which has ceased functions not only by opening the way for the present, it also helps to make that which is yet to be a reality of the future. Shortest moment of time is the time it takes for a single atom to turn. <laughs> They're talking about partless particles. I guess they turn. There are also coarser measurements, such as a 365th of a finger snap. The turn of an atom is not coarse, it's very subtle, very precise. 
that countless sub-moments can be differentiated with, even within such a short moment of time. It's clear from various sutras of the Buddha, such as the flower ornament. It's explained through the descriptions of the qualities of the Bodhisattvas at different levels, that even though there's immense difference between an aeon and an instant, the two need not be contradictory if judged from the perspectives of two different beings on different stages of the paths. Anyway, the mind and reasoning. Back to areas where the Buddhist tradition excels. Uh, let's see. Explained above, the Buddhist science, its presentation of reality, can be grouped under four main topics. Nature of the objective world, presentation of the mind. And then there's two types of, uh, two ways of uh, how those two interact. How the mind engages its object, and then the means for that engagement, such as the science of logical reasoning, by which the mind engages its object. And we'll come to um, the categories and uh, content of those last two eventually. Um, and, and we will, the, the collected topics goes into these, goes into topics two through four very briefly. And then they are, uh, the next segment, uh, if that focuses on the mind in the next volume of this series and in the next subject of the uh, Shadra curriculum, it focuses on the two, three, and four in great detail. Uh, he's already commented on the first topic, so now he's going to give a general little presentation of the of the, uh, the remaining three topics, which are part of what's called the science of mind in Tibetan low Rick. Rick is sometimes translated as classification. He's translated as science. Classification in the sense of sort of um, a science of the topic by virtue of the classification of sort of um, understanding it or analyzing it. Anyway, um, and he'll go through those in the volume two of the series, so we don't get a real, his uh, introduction here. Then he's coming to the second of the three topics. There was the natural world, Abhidharma, philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, Sutra, and then there was uh, ethics. Buddhist philosophy, uh, sorry, not, not ethics, the third uh, topic is religion, Buddhism as a path of practice, sorry. Second one, philosophy represents the summation of the conclusions about the nature of reality developed through critical inquiry, such as we just went through. This will be treated in volumes three and four, and this is known as tenets of the various uh, philosophical schools, the traditionally the four major ones, of Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Madhyamaka. Uh, let's see. Buddhism works explicitly presenting philosophical views evolved quite early, and he cites a number of texts as representative of this, starting with the famous questions of King Menander, this Greek king who was placed in charge of India by Alexander the Great, and has an amazing Q&A with uh, a famous monk, can't remember his name suddenly, but it's very cool. It's in two volumes, translated in archaic English. 
Uh, let's see, before the Common Era, the Abhidharma treatise is starting around the first century of the Common Era. And we'll come back to the timing of the Abhidharma when we go through the various texts later on. And then the six philosophical treatises of Nagarjuna as being uh, the next sort of evolution of presentation of philosophical views. And then there's sort of an explosion of different philosophical texts. Um, and then as well as uh, presentation of the different views of the schools of Buddhism and non, other non-Buddhist traditions, such as those composed by Bhava Viveka in his Blaze of Reasoning. At least he comes up with good names for his texts. You know, I like that. Instead of like the 400 stanzas. <laughs> which is the name of Arya Deva's main text um, and Shanti Deva's uh, compendium on reality. Uh, sorry, Shantarakshita. Sorry, Shantarakshita's compendium of reality, famous text. These, the two of them where they go through all the Buddhist schools, but as well the non-Buddhist schools in great detail and present them and refute them. Uh, basic Buddhist philosophy is uh, encapsulated in the four seals or four axioms, which he goes through quickly in permanence and uh, uh, emphasizes they don't remain, phenomena do not remain static even for a single moment. This is because things do not depend on some third condition for their disintegration. In different schools, he's presenting one version of the explanation of the different schools have different ways of explaining why things instantaneously disintegrate. He says that phenomena possess the very causes, or rather, the very causes that produce phenomena also produce their disintegration, their programmed obsolescence, instant obsolescence is programmed in. And uh, we can see the truth of this when we look at gross things. And uh, let's see, the second one, the next paragraph is that um, all phenomena, sorry, he, Sorry, he doesn't really, he doesn't like italicize these three. The editors, I think, goofed up. They didn't italicize the three, sorry, the four axioms. Um, but he is giving the second one that all contaminated phenomena are characterized by suffering. And, uh, this is pre-COVID, so they weren't talking about that sort of contamination, but contaminated by um, passion, aggression, ignorance, the clashes. And uh, the statement, um, Nirvana is peace. Dharma Kirti identifies this with the possibility of eliminating pollutants from the mind. And um, and the last sentence, the teaching on no self relates principally to the ultimate nature of reality. So those are the four axioms. Impermanence, everything's impermanent. All contaminated phenomena 
contaminated by the view of a self, are uh, characterized by suffering. Nirvana is peace, and there is no independent self. Oh, we say that I'm up above, I'm sorry. All conditioned things are permanent, all contaminated things are characterized by suffering, all phenomena are empty and devoid of selfhood, and Nirvana is peace. For some reason, he, they italicized impermanence, but not the others. Anyway, he goes through an interesting presentation of the self in the next paragraph that is rejected in all Buddhist schools. A self that is unitary, sorry, eternal, unitary, and autonomous. Those three categories of a of a uh, belief in a substantial self that we've experienced in other classes. Eternal, meaning not that it lasts forever, but that it lasts for more than two, more than one moment. It persists. It's unitary instead of being a conglomeration of factors, and it's autonomous. It decides what it's going to do on its own. Yet many Buddhist schools assume that what we call self or person must nonetheless exist in some form. This is the Madhyamaka view, which claims that all the other schools end up asserting some sort of a self after all. We find the assertion that the self exists on the basis of the aggregates, which is a reference to the, uh, the Madhyamaka's characterization of the by Bashika and Sautrantika schools, that they end up saying, in, in their, and, and they do this in their um, analysis, of, analysis of and um, description of how does karma work? Who is it that, it that accumulates karma and experiences karma? And they say that there's appropriation Karma is appropriated, and we saw that in the non-associated formations. The term appropriation was a non-associated formation. And there, if you have appropriation of karmic momentum, you have an appropriator. An appropriator is the, the continuum of the conglomeration of the aggregates. Uh, which then they have a hard time differentiating that, or differentiating that from a, from the idea of a self, which is why the Madhyamaka put them down or refute them. Others positing that the mind alone is the person. He's talking about the Chittamatra, mind only, obviously. Some recognize six types of consciousness that are unstable, like bubbles. Others... Uh, assert eight classes of consciousness and posit a foundational consciousness, Aliyah Vishnana, to be the real person. He's, he's characterizing the Chitta in the very um, pejorative, clunky way that the Galupa Madhyamaka tradition characterizes the Chitta and others seem false in identifying the person with the aggregates assert a self or a person that is neither identical nor different from the aggregates. And this is the famous Pudgalavadan school of the early 18 schools that held that there is a person, there is a self, but it's neither the same as nor different from the aggregates, which is a uh, logical impossibility. But it's a handy, sort of like a new age thing. You know, it's like, well, it is, but it isn't. That's the way Zongsar, when Zongsar presents the, the, 
four extremes. He calls this one the New Age one. Both. And neither, he says, is not, it's neither the same or different. He says that's like Taoism. <laughs> anyway, um, there's a divergence of interpretations and subtleties among the Tibetan Buddhist schools. And I'm only halfway through the chapter, which is a problem. I have to work on time. I have to get back to time, see how we can tinker with time. He goes through dependence in some detail, which uh, was, I thought, interesting. And um, he's going through major aspects of the Buddhist view. The first one is uh, dependent origination. The second one, on the bottom of 19, another important philosophical view in Buddhist texts is that of the two truths. And we see this language appear even in non-Buddhist Indian schools. And in Buddhism, all four schools thought uh, equal, uh, schools of thought equally accept the notion of two truths, but talk about them in very different ways. And on the bottom, in brief, ultimate truth pertains to the ultimate nature of things. All conventional relates to perspectives rooted in the apparent world. When we go through the tenets, we'll go into this whole thing in great detail. So I'll skip um, the remainder of this paragraph, except, uh, and then go to the next paragraph. That pot, sorry, I'm out of flower pot, is empty at the very moment it's perceived, and it can be perceived while simultaneously being empty, which was a problem for the earlier schools. They felt if something was empty, how could it be perceived? And then Yamaka's waved their magic wand and said, there's no problem. They're both empty and appearing. And then he says, Madhyamaka thinkers explain this by saying that the two truths have the same nature, uh, but are conceptually distinct. So the two truths are appearance and emptiness. The conventional truth is appearance and the ultimate truth is emptiness. And so the pot is uh, the combination of both those truths. It's an appearing emptiness. And he says that's not contradictory because the two truths are not different things. He says they have the same nature. They're one and the same thing. They're different aspects of that, of phenomena. All phenomena have two aspects, an appearing aspect and a, an an ontological aspect, which is their emptiness. And uh, those are two aspects of the same thing. And to, in an effort to, um, to, uh, to try to avoid the uh, qualities becoming uh, reified, they use this term isolate, which we encountered in Chapachuki Sanye's famous 18 points where he says, he refers to the term isolate, they're conceptual isolates. So we can talk about the two aspects of reality of its uh, conventional status as appearing and its ultimate status as being empty. We can talk about them as if they're different things because they're conceptually isolatable. But in reality, reality is one and the same thing, reality. Buddhist religion is the third category. Um, 
although aspects of the Buddhist tradition that fall under religion are connected with faith, the basic framework is grounded in the principle of causality, the laws of nature, fact. Um, then he goes through some examples of that, and we'll skip to... Uh, well, he goes, he goes, on the 21, he goes through Dharmakirti's interpolation of that way of approaching reality as a path, as a religious path um, in terms of dependent origination. And, um, and then he goes through a long and very detailed presentation of history. And uh, I don't know how interesting this section was to people. Were people interested in this section at all? <laughs> a little bit. It was such a nice, uh, like, tight encapsulation. I, I found it was like a nice little refresher. Um, yeah, it was a great from... overview, a, a summary of a whole lot of information. And uh, so let's see if I can run through some of it quickly. Uh, he goes, he restates the three categories, and then, so I'm at 21, the second paragraph. Then in the second sentence, he says, among the Buddhist classics available in Tibetan, we have the two canonical collections. So uh, he's using a sort of Western term that is uh, a distinction made in the uh, Tibetan tradition as well, that texts become canonized, sort of like sacred scripture. And um, those are the conjure. The precious collection of the conjure contains translations of the Buddhist words as embodied in the three baskets or the tripitaka, which is a little bit of an odd thing to say because the, the Tibetan conjure is not at all divided into these three categories but it's a common way that uh, westerners have come to know the set of buddhist scriptures attributed to the buddha and it contains both sutra as well as tantras unlike the pali tripitaka the precious collection of the tengir he's, he's saying both of these collections are precious contains the treatises of great masters of india in particular, or exclusively, the great masters of India. And uh, he refers to the 17 Nalanda masters that include Nagarjuna, Sangha, the two trailblazers <laughs> prophesied by the Buddha. So uh, instead of charioteers, which is some, usually the way that these are referred to, Nagarjuna and Sangha, the two charioteers, he calls them trailblazers, <laughs> great terminology. And um, there's this scheme that the pedants come up with of, of there being these, this set of uh, really the best, the most important of the Indian masters, Buddhist masters. And they come up with a list of 17 of them and they, because Nalanda was revered as being the main university of Buddhism in India, all of which is not true, this really actually in, in reality, but it simplifies things. And they say that all 17 of them were from Nalanda. Now, if Nagarjuna lived 600 years, then yes, he could have been at Nalanda, but the 
the usual dating for him of 150 to 250 precedes the law by a couple hundred years. So the fact that he's included in these 17 masters, a little bit of an anomaly. A number of others were never affiliated with Nalanda, but they become Nalanda eyes. They sort of get honorary degrees from Nalanda University and become part of the 17. Uh, but anyway, I love the idea of like, out of the hundreds of masters that are the authors of the second collection called the Tenger, um, coming up with like a short list of the most important ones and their most important texts, I think is a really brilliant idea and focusing on the study of those texts as being uh, the um, most important representative texts of the Buddhist tradition, I think is a really smart idea. Um, and his, uh, his, uh, one of his students, Robert Thurman, famous professor, uh, was at Columbia University, had uh, the J. Tsongkhapa chair <laughs> at Columbia University. He was tasked by the Dalai Lama with translating the Tenger. And Tsongkhapa, uh, as you probably know, has taken up the, the goal of translating the Conjure with a project called the 84,000. So we have those two projects should be done. I don't know. What, what are we in now? September? What's today? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, let's see. Is Thurman been, actually doing that? He is in a, in a not very systematic way. But if you look at his thing called the American Institute of Buddhist Classics, that is his mission. And he's focusing initially on Tantra. They've published a number of Tantras. And his goal, he, I talked to him about this once, and he said his, his goal is to publish translations of the main Tantras of the new trend tradition. Father Tantras, Mother Tantras, non-dual Tantras. So, Guya Samaja, Kala Chakra, and Chakra Sambara and to really publish full translations of those and uh, commentaries on them is his goal, which is great. That makes sense. The focus on Tantra, I don't know, but uh, they've also published a number of works of uh, the Sutra section of the Tendra as well. Uh, let's see, then he goes on to praise the Tibetan version as having the greatest collection of Buddhist texts, largest number of texts that represent the best translations and most comprehensive Buddhist canon is the Tibetan, according to, which is a bone of contention, I'm sure, because the Chinese and the Japanese feel that there's quite good, if not better. Um, Many works composed in classical languages, such as primarily Sanskrit, were entirely lost in their original language, and only a few of the great works, great works remain in Sanskrit. In the Pali, we find scriptures associated with Theravadan tradition, and, um, but uh, none of the other Buddhist schools. So the Pali is exclusively the Theravadan school of the, ter of the early tradition among the 18 schools. The Theravadan tradition is an offshoot of the Staviravada, Staviravada school. 
and they don't have any sutras of the Mahayana nor tantras. A great number of texts were translated into Chinese. However, modern researchers say that because of the character of the Chinese language, these translations tend to be looser and do not match the rigorous correspondence, both in terms and meaning, found in the Tibetan translations. And, and while this sounds a bit controversial, most Tibetan scholars would agree. <laughs> Obviously, all Tibetan scholars would agree, but uh, the others, Chinese and Japanese, might concede as well that Chinese language, if you, if you know anything about Chinese language, does not like have uh, a grammar that's like Western languages. So it's very hard. Uh, like like uh, with the Tibetan, what you can do is you can actually back translate into Sanskrit with some degree of accuracy. With Chinese, the back translation into Sanskrit is not very uh, reliable because of the difference in the way that language is structured, and it's not it doesn't it's not a, a comment on the capability of their translators by any means. You know, and it could be argued that that the the way their language is structured and the way they translate it actually conveys the meaning in a in a deeper way. I, I haven't done this relative to Tibetan translation, but I've read poetry, Chinese poetry with a, a Chinese scholar who himself, I mean, basically, even poetry, it's like very difficult to, you, you don't pin down the meaning. It's like it more opens that up to many interpretations. I think that's a little bit more the nature of the, the language um, in the same way you're describing it. So, yeah, it's... It's it has so a based on interpretation. It's based on, you know, the first there's the tonal system is like the spoken is like very nuanced, and the and the written has has all these vague things about it that totally contextual. The same phrases could be translated like in many different ways. So it, well, it adds a lot of there's a certain richness to the language, but yeah, the the sort of precision of being able to line it up with another language would be very difficult, yeah. impossible. Yeah. However, as we'll see, they translated a lot of texts that did not get translated initially into Tibetan. And so um, there's a lot of important texts that are only findable in Chinese translation. And one of the, uh, and then also the, uh, uh, in the Tibetan collection of the conjure, the, the texts attributed to the Buddha, many of the texts of the Pali Canon do not appear in the conjure. Actually, very few texts from the Pali tradition appear in the conjure, interestingly or strangely. And uh, so Zongsar, who is now doing the translation of the conjure into English and ultimately other languages, is also embarking on projects to translate texts from the Pali that are missing in the Tibetan canon, starting with a few important ones because there's many that are missing, translating those into the Tibetan language as well as translating some Chinese texts into, into the Tibetan language. Uh, let's see, a little history, three Buddhist councils. There's this notion in the Buddhist tradition of there being three Buddhist councils, and you get various versions of them packaged either more perfectly or you know, much more legendary versions, and then less perfectly or more sort of Western scholarly oriented. And here we get a little bit of... Uh, middle uh, sort of a hodgepodge interestingly from the Dalai Lama and you see and you see in this whole section uh, a couple of things about him 
is uh, very much, uh, you, you know, we just saw his uh, um, preference for Tibetan translation was sort of interesting. And then we see that uh, he, for starters, believes that all the sutras and tantras were actually um, taught by the Buddha in one way or another, which is uh, quite an interesting um, thing to hold or to consider, to comprehend. Um, and uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find Western, any Western scholars who accept that. Let's see, so uh, according to the both traditions, from his first, he says, public sermon <laughs> to the five buddies um, on the Four Noble Truths in Varanasi, seven days after his enlightenment. Now, I thought it was seven weeks. I don't know if that's a mistake or if that's a certain version that he has. That's interesting. It's usually seven weeks he spent mulling about, wondering whether he should teach or not, right? Or dwelling in the bliss of enlightenment. Um, after his enlightenment until his final day at uh, Kushinagara, is where he died, the Buddha traveled for 40 years across India, walking around, taught in numerous places to countless disciples in accordance with their needs and dispositions. And these discourses were later compiled within the Tripitaka. You know, so just right there, 40 years, traveled all over northern India to, to believe that all of his teachings are accurately captured in the Tripitaka is an enormous feat of faith. <laughs> isn't the, of the Tripitaka, isn't the Abhidharma something that was sort of post-constructed? The Abhidharma is considered by, yeah, we were, I was going to get to this, but thank you for mentioning oh, okay. In particular, the Abhidharma is considered by all Western scholars something that was, was later written, um, uh, like a couple of hundred years later, because it just doesn't appear in the historical record. And um, some schools, the Tripitaka is not written by, uh, sorry, the Abhidharma texts. There's famously seven Abhidharma texts in all versions of the of the early versions of the collections, the scriptures of the Buddhas. Those seven were written by the great Arhats. And sometimes you see it explained that, well, they were written down by those Arhats, but they're really the teaching of the Buddha. But they don't have the formula that the sutras have of thus have I heard was meant to be like, I was there. This is what the man said. <laughs> this is an interesting tradition. Um, there was a, uh, let's see, the discourses were later compiled. Uh, let's see. For example, in the summer of the Buddha's final nirvana, so he, he passes into nirvana in May, the full moon of May. Uh, there was a, a convention, a, a conference summoned uh, by senior monk Kashipa. Mahakashipa, the first Buddhist council, took place at Rajagriha, modern-day Rajagriha, Rajagir, in the Saptaparna cave. And each one of the compilers opened with the phrase, thus have I heard, thus I once heard. So he's saying that all three of them 
and there's uh, the three compilers are the compilers of the three baskets of the Tripitaka, the Abhidharma, the Sutra, and the Vinaya. So he's cleaving to this view that the Abhidharma was uh, recited at that council. And uh, ended with the statement, everyone gathered, praised what the Blessed One had taught. He, uh, Mahakashyapa recited and compiled the Abhidharma, Abhidharma basket, Upali, the Vinaya, and Ananda, the Sutra. And thus began the process of upholding the scriptural baskets. hundred years later is another one. And then the third one, he's shaken. He gives different versions of it. Um, not terribly important for our mission here. On page 23 in the bottom, and we'll end with this. As for the scriptures that are unique to the Mahayana, they were not compiled at the above-mentioned Buddhist councils. They were missing. They were intentionally withheld. They are understood to have been compiled by Manjushri Avalokiteshvara and Vajrapani, the three great bodhisattvas of wisdom, compassion, and power, capability, and so on. So some other bodhisattvas were involved in various locations perceptible only to the minds of disciples with pure vision. So it's like a secret cult, whole different version of uh, his teachings were only uh, accessible to those who had a certain level of uh, enlightenment, basically. In terms of the Tantras, the Tantras themselves give diverse explanations. And uh, the, the non-Mahayana Shravaka schools accept only the Buddha's teaching on the Four Noble Truths to be the turning of the wheel of Dharma and recognize all other discourses of the Buddha to be further elaborations on that sermon. So thereby, therefore, they reject the Mahayana Sutras and the Tantras. Uh, Mahayana schools have this notion of there being three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma. The second turning pertaining to the absence of characteristics occurred at Vulture Peak, Rajagri. Uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Vajrakuta Mountain. While the third pertaining to clear differentiation took place in Vaishali. And for 400 years until Nagarjuna lived, the Mahayana Sutras were kept secret outside the purview of common human perception. This is the, the traditional view of how this, this happened. Nagarjuna made many of the Mahayana Sutras flourish widely, and there's various legends of how he encountered a couple of guys who were really Nagas in disguise, and they took him down to meet the Naga king under the ocean. And the Nagya king had been preserving the Prajnaparamita Sutras and he gave them to Nagarjuna who brought them back up and studied them and understood them and taught them. And uh, let's see, maybe we'll just go through this section and on this page. And let's see. The Shravaka schools do not accept the Mahayana Sutras in the second full, actually first full paragraph. And so there was an object of debate and therefore Nagarjuna himself and uh, other authors, Maitreya and Mahavaraveka, presented arguments to establish the Mahayana Sutras as authentic teachings of the Buddha. 
Now, usually it's it's considered that there were many, by the time of the Garjana, there were actually many Mahayana sutras floating around. And uh, part of the argument for that is that if he were to go to the effort of arguing for their uh, authenticity, they must have been around for some time. It wasn't like he was like holding this up and saying, I found the real thing. He was talking about the Mahayana sutras in general when he was defending them. So just for a sort of reality check on that. Um, and the argument of the authenticity of the sutras and tantras continues to this day where you have um, in Tibet a similar situation of many of the Nyingma tantras were not considered to be authentic tantras um, connected to the Buddha by the later schools or certain of the later schools, but were considered to be created texts. Whereas the Nyingmas hold them to be tantras just like any all the other tantras. Um, let's see. Asanga initiated the Chittamatra school through the five treatises of Maitreya and composed lots of other texts. And they represent the implicit subject matter of the perfect perfection of wisdom sutras, which is the stages of the path. He was that was his forte was going through the stages of the path in great detail. And uh, let's see. I think that's it for now. The rest of it is, is lots of history and lots of names of books. And uh, let's see, he finally comes to the compendium on page 29 and 30 to 31. And uh, he says the rationalization is basically there's so many texts that we have to condense them down into uh, concise presentations. And that's what these four volumes of his compendiums are. And that's his aspiration. Comments, thoughts, suggestions. That was a little dry run through, but um, there's a lot of material, a lot of information. There'll be a quiz on the names of all those texts and the teachers next week. So sharp up. <laughs> what else? Anything else? Comments? I'm still trying to figure out how many volumes are in this series. Four? <laughs> or is it five? There's four volumes in this series. Volumes. The first one is the objective world, the physical world. The second one is the mind. And then I don't know the exact titles of the last two, but they're going to be on the, the philosophy, the, the tenets. I suspect the third one is going to go through the, the traditional way of presenting the tenets of the various schools. And then I think the fourth one is probably going to focus on the Madhyamaka tradition. Madhyamaka tradition. Anything else we should uh, dedicate? And so next week we dive in. 
By this merit may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the region's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Nice to see you all. Thank you, Dave. Good night. Thank good you. Week. Thanks, DK. Bye, guys. Good night. Bye. Thank you. Thank see you, you soon.